Hello, I'm Alex Rutkeen, a barrister at the Open Essex Chamber specialising in mental capacity law. I'm really pleased to be joined today in the extremely rainy shed um, by not one but two guests, uh, Camilla Kong and Penny Cooper. Um, anyone who's listened or, uh, to or seen any of these before will know I don't really like introducing the people I'm speaking to, I like them to introduce themselves. So Camilla, over to you first. Um, introduce yourself, please. So I am Camelia Kong, obviously, and I am a senior lecturer and um, fellow of the Institute of Humanities and Social Sciences at Queen Mary and the School of Law at Queen Mary, University of London. Brilliant. Penny. So I must be Penny Cooper then. And I'm a visiting professor at Birkbeck, founder and former chair of the Advocates Gateway, uh, former barrister, now academic associate at 39 Essex as well. Brilliant, great. Well, you two have got a wealth of fascinating and complicated and interesting uh, experience which we could discuss. But why we're in the shed today is to talk about the Judging Values Project. So, Camelia, given it was, um, in a very real sense, your idea, kind of explain to us, just help us through with, you know, what was the idea and what did you want to achieve? So the project really emerged because um, I had I had completed a, uh, two books, one with you, Alex, actually, but one which was really the um, the result of a British Academy postdoctoral fellowship, um, looking more specifically at relationships in the context of capacity law. And in the process of that research, um, it, it really became clear to me about how, the extent to which there are certain moral values and commitments that undergird the decision making of, of, of um, these kind of substantive decisions made in the quarter protection. Um, and I have a long-standing interest in, in from a kind of theoretical point of view about those the, the sources of those commitments and the kind of depth of those commitments and how we validate and understand and justify those commitments. Um, and it, it became clear to me about uh, in the course of that research the extent to which um, human rights and the kind of rights-based language is only a tip of the iceberg of those commitments. So the the purpose of the project really emerged to try to um and to, to interrogate that in, in more detail, to draw out the um, empirical basis for that observation, but also look at it from a theoretical point of view, and um, and very helpfully because I I know you and you um, and you put me in touch with various people like Penny, who has such expertise um, from the kind of practical policy dimension of participation. Um, and I have also these long-standing academic connections with um, with with Mike, Mikey Michael Dunn, who is also a co-investigator on the project, as also um, John Coggin, um, who is a co-investigator. So that really developed. That was a, that was the, in, the the starting point of the project. And then it was um, at that point we just decided that we'll bring as many people on board, such as yourself, such as Victoria Butler Cole, um, who was really instrumental in the first instance of trying to um, uh, ensure that we had access and ways in which we might be able to access certain channels for our empirical interviews. So um, that's really the, the the kernel of the idea and the kind of practical um, evolution of the project. So Penny, when Camilla came a calling, why did you say yes? <laughs> As I 
as my recollection is it when we met at 39 Essex my first response wasn't yes but it was like why me what do they want me more <laughs> I'm really interested in the court of protection I thought to myself but I don't know a huge amount about it um but then it became clear that that you were interested in looking at participation and that's the way my research has taken me over recent years I started off looking at vulnerable people and how intermediaries could help them and designed the first intermediary training courses 20 years ago now and having worked in the criminal courts as a researcher with vulnerable people I've become increasingly interested in how other courts including the court of protection made adjustments for people who couldn't ordinarily um, have a voice if the court just said you know you have to fit in with us um, so the court of protection offered me an opportunity to this project rather offered me an opportunity to learn so much more about the court of protection and work with two very very intelligent people yourselves <laughs> uh You've sort of explained the kernel, Camilla, and thank you for giving the, also your background on kind of the participatory side, Penny. Just run us through, Camilla, in outline, you know, what, what the project did. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll stop pretending I was involved in it, um, but just run us through, <laughs> run us through, you know, the kind of the headline points of what, what the project did. And then I wanted to dig into a couple of aspects with Penny, if I may. So, Camilla, go for it. So the project um, was an interdisciplinary project. It looked at the kind of empirical and the legal and philosophical analysis of, of how values impact on decision-making in the court of protection. And specifically, we wanted to look at the substantive decisions that are made around best interests, but we also looked at how decision-making is um, carried out around the participation of P, because we might think that that's actually a really straightforward um, process. The law says one thing, and then Obviously, legal practitioners and judges must else, uh, do something as articulated by the law. But the reality is that these decisions are um, informed by all sorts of different um, sources and different reasons that we really wanted to bring out and bring to the forefront. And I think what we um, what we set out was we did some empirical, we started out with some legal analysis, looking at the, um, the, the, the law, the legal um, cases around the notion of um, articulation of deliberation in best interest decision making. We, so we really critically interrogated different aspects of best interest decision making, um, one unwise decisions. And we also um, undertook 56 interviews with legal professionals. And, and these were qualitative interviews with um, legal practitioners and retired judges. And this was to provide us really um, some insight into how legal professionals themselves understand the values that inform their decisions, how they informs how legal practitioners frame cases when even just setting up the case to go to court, and then um, how these decisions might have been made by retired judges. It was really interesting because it shed light on how important it is to consider the motivational value use, the why legal professionals do what they do, why they are practicing spe specifically in the court of protection, how does it inform a particular ethos um, in their practice and in their practice uh, in, the, in the process of judging. And, um, and as, as a result of that kind of empirical analysis and our initial legal analysis, we've tried to bring those together and um, look at how the empirical basis might lead to some normative observations and recommendations for, um, for how to improve 
improved practice in the border protection. Penny, I can see you nodding in particular, the kind of in, interrogating the kind of motivations aspect. Yeah. And, and I just wondered if you wanted to give your thoughts on that from, from your, your involvement. Well, yes, I, one of the things that struck me was as a former practicing barrister who spent quite a number of years in the family courts is, is was the thought that when I'd been practicing in the family courts, had I really thought about my values and where they came from and how that impacted the input that I had into child protection cases that I did. So that was one thought. And then when I did some of the interviews, um, by far, you know, the large majority of the of them were done by others, but I, I was um, lucky enough to do some of the interviews with practitioners, including some quite senior practitioners. And I suppose in one way I felt a little reassured because when the topic of values came up, very often the response was, hmm, um, values, yes, oh. And we'd say, you know, what, what, do, what does the word values mean to you? And then there would be a moment of silence or maybe a few moments of silence in the interviews. And, and practitioners would try to explain in their own words what values meant to them. But there seemed to be you know, an, an obvious opportunity for us through this project and to encourage practitioners to think more about their own values and how they impacted their practice, which obviously is incredibly important because the word values appears in the Mental Capacity Act. And when we ask questions about how um, P's values were explored and presented to the court, the answers from practitioners told us quite a lot, which um, Camilla might want to summarise this a, a different way, was that they quite often weren't explored um, or explored very well in cases. And when practitioners thought about P's values, there wasn't always, it seemed, a clear distinction between P's beliefs and their values. Um, and another thing that cropped up was there was often, oh, values, um, religious beliefs. So there was a, a sort of mm. thinking of values to religious beliefs, but people struggled to think beyond that um, in terms of what P's values uh, might be. I hope that's a fair summary, Camilla. That's, that's I think exactly that's how great. I remember it. And I think it's also there was there was a real strong tendency to reduce values also to subjective wishes and feelings and yes. the sense in which that we wanted to explore well how, what makes values distinctive in some ways and how could they be in tension with these other dimensions that, that you ought to be considering in the process of best interest decision making I mean I find I mean I find that very interesting actually in my I mean my the, the bits I did in terms of for instance one of the, the training films um, was really sort of trying to help people think through um, mm. what the distinction might be between wishes and feelings and then beliefs and values. And I think it's certainly right that, that there's very much always, oh, we, we're working on the kind of wishes and feelings angle, mm, not quite so sure about beliefs and values. And I, I, mm. I wonder, I mean, actually, Camilla, can I just ask you what were you, what your working definition would be for <laughs> values, for P's values? I mean, if, if, if each piece of the Mental Capacity Act is supposed to be doing some work, you know, we've got wishes, we've got feelings, we've got beliefs, and then we've got values. Given so much of the focus of the project was on values, I'd just be interested in your take on well, what you know, what are we actually trying to dig into here? I think the way that I would define it is 
the kind of substantive commitments that orientate our lives. Mm-hmm. And this is the way, I, I mean, this doesn't mean that they're, they don't overlap with wishes and feelings, but in some respects, they're more thoroughgoing. They are things that might be um, unconscious. They might be conscious. They might be reflected on. Um, but they're often things that actually have a kind of enduring, longstanding importance in one's life. And I think that's the way that I would define it. And that's why I think it was so important for refl- for practitioners and retired judges, the judges that we got to interview, to think about their own values, because it's in some respects, you cannot appreciate the fact of P's values without actually appreciating the depth of one's own commitment. It doesn't, our, the, I think the purpose of the project fundamentally was not to say that, um, to, to promote this idea of, well, you have these values, and you must somehow cut yourself from these values. It is a sense in which we have to be reflexive about them and the importance of them, because in some ways, what was so revealing about the, the our project was the extent to which the values of legal professionals could be fruitful bases for mm-hmm. um, for good practice and their own articulation of what they thought they envisaged as good practice. And we might think that, well, that means just intruding these arbitrary subjective values of professionals. But in fact, there is a very, very um, important other regarding dimension to the values that were articulated by legal professionals that I think we could validate and say are, are important. It's an important groundwork for practicing the court of protection. So what implications, gosh, there's so many questions I want to ask, but I'll just sort of focus in on the kind of practical implications. So what implications does that have for training for you know being being a good practitioner whatever that means before the court of protection what what you know so in terms of those practical implications what what does that what are those do you want to go Penny, to do you want to well I, well I can say a little bit on the on the training front because one of the things that 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 came out through our first tranche of interviews with practitioners was this this value that you know, many of them held about wanting to support the participation and communication of P, but saying very honestly, we, we haven't had much, and some of them, no training at all yeah. um, in working with people, for example, with learning disabilities. So that led us on to work with the charity Voiceability that supports people with autism and or learning disability and create the communication and participation film. Interestingly, we were originally funded through um, uh, by the funders, the budget on this project, to do face-to-face training sessions. And we had to go back to them because COVID came along, so we can't do face-to-face training sessions. But we thought perhaps we could create a film. And even that presented challenges because all the preparation for the film had to be done online. And then there were obviously particular restrictions about getting into a room with a film crew and filming people. But, you know, we managed um, in the summer of last year to to produce a film that we were very happy with and got some fabulous feedback on, which is on YouTube now. And then the because that worked so well, the second film we produced was called Making Values Matter in the Court of Protection. And that sits there on, on YouTube for all to see and has had positive feedback. 
Um, so yeah, that that's that was my um, contribution towards the end of the project to support the training needs of practitioners as they'd expressed them to us and as they had become apparent throughout the course of the project. Yes, I mean I think it is very striking. Uh, I mean there is no, there's no such thing as a court of protection lawyer in the sense of you can't get a you know degree in being a court of protection lawyer. Mm -hmm. You can be accredited by the law society as a solicitor to, as an accredited. Uh, sort of welfare accreditation but it's uh, you know people stumble into it in different ways and then it is quite revealing you go mm, no one's ever told me how to have a conversation with somebody who might have communication difficulties and it's I think it's it's quite striking that 15 years into the life of the court of protection it's only now that people actually going, hang on a minute there's actually a concrete actual proper training need here you know if we're going to do this properly you have to provide tools for people to do this properly as opposed to just blundering around bluntly hoping that people are sort of decent human beings which mm. on one view might think that's what people have done to date mm. and I mean Camilla what what other things I mean sort of in terms of the the training videos what other things would you like to see in terms of you know building I mean the projects now have come to an end but the interest in the project obviously hasn't come to an end and I suspect your interest in, in, in the area hasn't come to an end what else would you like to see in terms of building building on it and taking it forward Oh, there are, yes, you're right. The project has formally ended, but we are still continuing on. I mean, and this is um, obviously this podcast kind of this came about because our final project report came out to distill our findings and our recommendations. But even with the final report, we are still working on things. Absolutely. So there are two things that we're we're currently trying to um, to complete. One is around um, the kind of significance of values, and um, and it's kind of drawing together really the empirical data and providing a kind of theoretical normative basis for that um, that kind of account, the empirical account that is provided by legal professionals themselves, and that I think um, is an academic paper that we would really like to make it ensure that it's open access because I think the open access nature of some of our academic findings has been really critical with um, for for legal professionals engaging with our our project. Um, there's another one uh, paper that we're hoping to work on is um, looking more specifically at the kind of character skills and um, orientation of legal professionals because that was something that was a really really um, prominent theme in our data that we would like to just really articulate um, maybe maybe drawing on um, some theoretical sources to just ground that. Um, but beyond this, beyond this, I think the, the next ambition is to fill in some of the gaps because um, we, we, we undertook um, interviews and work with legal professionals. We engaged with these stakeholders um, and I think it was so critical that we did this. However, the voice that is really missing is the voice of P. Yeah. And the P's family members. And I think that is the real next step um, where we would like to take this project to um, undertake some work, um, really meaningful work about what it means to have P's voice heard in, in the court of protection, but also what it means to understand intentionality in this context, um, mm -hmm. particularly in the context of profound um, impairment. I think what why the, the values question is so critical and why it has been such a strong running theme um, and has traction, long-standing traction, and, and um, is because 
there is an assumption that values and the kind of depth of values that we carry cannot, those with extreme um, disability might not actually have these values. And I think Mm -hmm. that is really important to critically interrogate that presumption. And I think that presumption still operates in the court of protection. It operates amongst um, many people, even, even implicitly, even though we might have the aspiration to involve and um and have a you know the participation of p but that is a presumption that i think we need to challenge and i'd like to go and do some work around that with this project penny did you have any i could see you nodding enthusiastically at one point yeah absolutely agree with all of that i feel very strongly about involving the voice of people with lived experience, lay participants, not just in the court of protection, but in all courts and tribunals. And Camilla and I have recently been working on another training film where it's been quite novel. I mean, at at the centre of this training film have been the voices of people with lived experience of uh, court of protection, criminal court, family court and PIP tribunal. Um, it's not going to be on general release. It's a, a, a private training film, but we're hoping to do some work in, in the future um, that really brings out the voice of people with lived experience because so much research up, up to now on participation in courts and tribunals have been with the legal professionals. So solicitors, barristers, judges, retired judges, but where, where's where's the research with people who've actually experienced it? Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And I think there's, I mean, I was thinking about this in the context of something else the other day in terms of uh, a research call for, in terms of capacity assessment. And one of the markers is what's a good capacity assessment? Mm. You go, well, uh, one of the markers you might want to think as to what makes a good capacity assessment is what do people on the receiving end of capacity assessments perceive to be good? But it's, you know, it's, it, it's, I mean, it's a complicated question in terms of how you then do the recipient, you know, the kind of boringly the research ethics is complicated in terms of actually engaging with people especially with with more profound impairments but at one level that doesn't mean that that just all that means is you should be putting more effort in rather than just running away and going oh gosh this is complicated we'll just look at you know the other side of the the coin mm-hmm. so i'm just going to finish with with two questions um back to both of you one was um what was your biggest surprise during the course of the project, what was the thing which surprised you most? And the other is, um, what's the one message you would most like people to take away from either the podcast or the research more generally? Camilla, can I hit you with the the surprise (laughs) question first? I think the surprise question is, um, and I'm I'm going to be trying, I think the surprise really came with, um how profound just bringing let me let me phrase it this way well in the course of developing the first training video we had a consultation with some legal professionals and persons with lived experience and from and also um their supporters at voiceability and as in the course of this um this consultation because we wanted to develop content that was from from the professionals as well as those with lived experience of learning disability and or autism and um what was so profound at the end of that day of the day was somebody saying to the legal professional well the legal professional one of the legal practitioners said thank you so much she was she was saying this to the um the the 
the kind of the people with lived experience and their part and their input. So I, I, we never get this opportunity and I've learned so much. And one of the participants said, well, that was just, thank you so much for saying that because we never hear this. And I mm -hmm. thought for me, it was not even, it's not maybe not so surprising, but I was, it was surprising that it came out in this research, but it came it, it just touched me profoundly. I think that was the bit. So it was not, maybe not answering the question, but it was most surprising, but it was the bit that I was surprised about how this kind of interaction and knowledge exchange could and, and could be so profound in a certain way. Um, and I think the main takeaway message that I would want people to take uh, to, to to have from the project to you know is that engaging with values is a really messy business, and it's not. It doesn't provide concrete solutions, but it makes you have a certain reflexivity and orientation in one's practice and in the and the process of judging that is so critical. And so I, I feel as though we can't actually distill the message of the research in, you know, some three snappy messages or yeah. three snappy sentences, because it is so complex. Um, war, it's complex and hard work. And I think that I wouldn't want um, legal professionals to shy away from that. And that's probably the message that I'd want to take right. away. Penny. I think for me, the the biggest surprise, and it's tied up also with the, the, probably the, the important message that I'd like people to take away, is, is around humanising a court. Because one of the things that came out of our research with practitioners was how much they were wedded to making humanizing the process we use that phrase because it came from one of our interviewees so by that I mean they wanted to make sure that they were respectful and considerate of people's uh, wishes feelings beliefs and values even if you know doing so was a, was a struggle in, in practical terms um, in relation to values in particular and it just it struck me very much how and I hope this isn't just wishful thinking, but I think how I think the courts are going that way, not just in the court of protection, but across all courts. We're beginning to interrogate things that we didn't interrogate before, which is the how practitioners treat people and how practitioners feel about the way they treat people. So an environment that once was really, to me, it feels all, all about process and thinking and things like feelings would actually be put to one side because goodness me, they'd be quite dangerous to have. I felt like the court of protection practitioners that were, we were interviewing were recognizing those. And I say, let, let's take that forward in future research and training. And as Camilla has always said, be very, reflective about our own motivations, values, and feelings. Brilliant, well, thank you so much. There are so many more questions I'd like to ask, but I do always try and keep these broadly within the 20 minute framework. So thank you very much indeed, both of you for your time. I'll put the link to the project uh, on, on, the, the, on the page for this so everybody can go off and please read um, everything which has been written because it's, <laughs> I, take, I can take very little credit for any of it and it's, it's all incredibly interesting. Thank you so much indeed for your time. Thank you, Alex. Thanks for having me. Thanks.